tonight, it is my purpose to continue with the analysis of some of the words and teachings of Jesus coming from the Gospel of Luke. We use this as a pretext for understanding better some cosmic laws, some principles as coming from the activity, from the life of one of the greatest teachers of humanity. For those of you who are new to this kind of lectures, uh, it would be good if you would listen to the old lecture, Jesus in the Eyes of Yoga, or if you would listen to the lecture I did a couple of months ago when I started this cycle of satsangs, in which I refreshed a little bit some of the ideas of why the yogis from India would gladly take over some of the teachings from Jesus, assimilate them, consider them as illustrative of different cosmic principles. For example, the last thing where we came last time in the last satsang, and we didn't actually start it much, very, very little, was about the temptation of Jesus. That Jesus, when he finally felt that the time had come, then he was ready to start his three years, three years and a half of thunderous mission on the face of this earth. Because that's all it took, three years, a bit more than three years. And before he did that, was he doing some purification in the last minute? Was his consciousness not clear? Like if Jesus was Jesus and he realized he was going to do what he was going to do, <clears throat> what further preparation did, did he need? Because if he was Jesus, he was prepared enough to start with. So why does such a man at such a spiritual stage, nevertheless start with a sort of a purification, consecration, and as a result of that, he also undergoes a temptation. Those of you who are familiar with the life of Jesus, at least if you have seen some of the Hollywood movies made in respect of his life, you can remember that even this was not the last temptation. It's presented there like it was his final test. But actually Jesus was tested several times during his life. One of his temptations came to the mouth of one of his closest disciples, Peter. Peter told him, that if he was going, since he was going to be crucified or killed in Jerusalem, then the simple solution was not to go to Jerusalem, which logically is very true. And Jesus said, Satan is talking through you. Get behind me. You know, like Jesus considered himself bitterly tempted in the last days to give up on his mission which had this terrible end to it. So actually the temptation didn't stop. Even when he was on the cross, Jesus was mocked by the idiots around 
who said, if you are truly the Son of God, why can't you get off the cross now and fly a little bit and show us some strength, and you are just sitting there like a common criminal and dying like an idiot without any capacity. Isn't that a temptation for a person of great capacity? Of course, it's a horrendously great temptation. So actually, the temptations of Jesus didn't stop. And that has a corollary. If Jesus, who claims himself to be God, incarnated on earth with a short, intense mission, if Jesus was tempted, not only this time, but several times, then what about us? First realization must be a very chilling realization, which says all human beings, especially the ones that climb the mountain, they are tempted non-stop. Many, many more times than Jesus. And therefore, the temptation is a process which is very, very important. And here in Agama, we assimilate it with the spiritual tests. We call these temptations spiritual tests. And all those of you who decide to go deeper in Agama, when you cross the barrier after the red sash, and you go to level number four and deeper, you are given some materials to read and to watch about a special series of lectures which I did a few years ago about the nature of this spiritual test. Because not a single one serious practitioner will escape from tests. And these tests are most of the time challenging because otherwise they wouldn't be tests. And because they are challenging, they take us out of our comfort zone. So I came to yoga, and after two weeks I started feeling good, and after four months, I'm in hell. Not because yoga is wrong, or contrary, we can say. Yoga is very good, but it brings up a series of spiritual tests. So yoga is not doctor feel good. Maybe in the beginning, when you do a little bit, you do three weeks of yoga, and you say, I feel much better. But yoga is not something just meant to make you feel better. Its value would be totally superficial. Yoga brings about, in any exercise of spiritual evolution, yoga brings about spiritual tests. And these tests are challenges. And these challenges are not pleasant. Remember that in a perfectly, perfectly symmetrical way, Buddha, when he sits under the Bodhi tree, when he is just about to reach Nirvana, there is one last step. And that last step is that a powerful demonic influence called in the Buddhist tradition Mara comes and tests him, not once, but at least three times with different kinds of tests, which are very, very similar with the tests that Jesus had in the beginning. That's because the story of Jesus is not the story of a man who reached enlightenment. Jesus was enlightened 
at this point when he started his mission. So what's happening to Jesus? They are tests post-enlightenment, which is quite weird to think, because then you can say, then why would there be tests? Even the gurus, even the teachers, they have their own tests. It's true, the tests of the beginners are of a different kind. Like the test of the beginner is, will you be persevering? Will you stick to the spiritual quest? Will you live a moral and ethical life according to Yama and Niyama? Will you conserve and cultivate your aspiration, your Ishvara Pranidhana? Will you do this? Will you do that? Those tests do not exist for a person like Buddha in the last stage, or like Jesus when he is about to start a mission of a planetary influence. The tests of Jesus are of a totally different scope. For example, as you are going to see, one of his tests is that he is proposed no more and no less than universal power. The demonic force proposes, and that's very meaningful, we'll come to that in a minute, proposes to give him all the power over this world and over all the people in this world. Which is very, very meaningful. Again, I'm coming back to that in a minute. Well, when you are a beginner in yoga, nobody will have that the devil is coming to you and says, if you stop doing yoga, I will give you power over the whole universe. Your demonic temptation is, I have an online business and in 10 years I could have a million dollars. So what should I do? Do yoga six hours per day or make a million dollars and then do yoga six hours per day after I'm financially secure, I'm financially independent. That can be a test for a beginner. What, in which order should I do things in my life? What should I do? But nobody comes and offers you power over the whole earth. Well, it has been offered to Buddha. But Buddha was in another point of the ladder. You are not at the same place on the ladder of evolution with Buddha or with Jesus in this case. Therefore, it's very, very important that this episode from the life of Jesus should make you take very seriously this problem, again, many of you are not in the level 4 or above in Agama. Some of you are. And in case you didn't reach that level, or if you did reach to that level, and you took it lightly, like, oh, yeah, oh, interesting, yeah, we got some video. Uh, did you watch it last three months? No, I didn't have time because I had a lot of potluck and a lot of Facebook activity. And sure, you decide what your priorities are. The point here being that this event in the life of Jesus should ring a bell for all of you. Because remember, if Jesus was tempted seriously, bitterly tempted, if Buddha was tempted, then how much more are you? How often? On what issues? I would like to make it clear 
from an esoteric, metaphysical, and therefore a yogic understanding. A temptation or a spiritual test is something which makes you show if you are in a category or not. For example, economical calculations in the world, they define nations according to the GDP and the input for the gross product per capita. How many thousands or tens of thousands of dollars per capita per head of citizen does that country produce every year? And then you have the G7, the G8, the first eight countries in the world in terms of that. And then you have lesser countries, lesser countries, and then in the end you have a long list of countries which are called the third world countries. And the third world countries are the poor countries. The countries where this GDP per capita is low. It's very, very low. These are categories. So suddenly you go to the United Nations and say, I want to be promoted as an advanced country. What's your GDP? How much population have you got? What's the GDP per capita? Okay. Then you are an advanced country. They simply change your location. Your designation is changed. It's like an exam, which says you pass the exam, you go in this category. For example, are you a person as spiritual evolution that, let's take the most simple, visible, growth and um, shocking of all the moral and ethical things. The very first of the yamas and niyamas, ahimsa, violence or non-violence. Are you a person that is safe from the standpoint of violence slash non-violence? Like, should you be put in an extreme situation? Would you react with violence or not? Should you be given power, real power, that absolute power which corrupts absolutely? Would you go down to violence when the need would subjectively seem so? There are people like Jesus and Buddha who are completely safe like the universe knows, the devas, the gods, the deities know, the angels and archangels know, the masters from Shambhala know, and God himself knows that these people have passed their test. And if they are slapped on one cheek, they will turn the other as well. They are tested. Why? Because they have been tested. When? Millions of gazillions of years ago, sometime in the long history of their spiritual development, they had this test. It's exactly like you go to a university and you have to go through 45 different exams. And if you did not pass one of those exams, you cannot graduate. Graduation is conditional of that. To be a Jesus, to be a Buddha, 
you should have passed 4500 exams in your past. And if you didn't pass them, you are not there. That's why I'm explaining all these things to you so that you see that according to metaphysics, this spiritual test, they are not some chaotic, arbitrary, whimsical thing. They actually respect a certain law of evolution, a very good metaphor of the perfection of the human spirit, as done in one of the Kabbalistic texts, is that the spirit is perfected like you are polishing a precious stone. And exactly as a jeweler polishes slowly, slowly, it can take him one day to make one facet. Then tomorrow he makes another. And the well-polished diamond can have 64 facets. So it can take 60 days to polish it. A little bit every day. A little, but when you finish today, you know that this facet of the diamond is mirror-like, straight, perfect, polished to perfection, and you don't need to come back to it. It's finished. Exactly in the same way, the 64 characteristics of a human being, of course they are not 64, I'm just saying like for a diamond, they are polished little by little. And in every year, in every lifetime, you develop some aspect of it. And once that one is polished, you don't lose it. You don't lose it. For example, there is an urban legend about Saint Nicholas, if I remember correctly. Saint Nicholas is the Russian, Ukrainian, Christian Orthodox saint, which later in the Catholic mysticism, because it was so far from Rome, and was a distant character in time and in space, was transformed into Santa Claus. Santa Claus is supposed to be Saint Nicholas, who is celebrated on the 6th of December, and somehow because he is close to Christmas, this Saint Nicholas brings to children, presents, and all that stuff. But again, it's not. Christmas is about Jesus. Santa Claus is about Saint Nicholas. Well, this Saint Nicholas urban legend when you read, if you'll go and read, I don't know if it's on Wikipedia, but when you read the Christian synopsis on his life, one strange fact was noticed about him as a baby. In Christianity, Eastern Christianity especially, it was done in Catholic Christianity, but then it was dropped slowly, slowly. There is a tradition, there is a custom, which is called the Lent that certain days of the year and certain days of every week are Lenten days, which means basically vegan days. You are not supposed to touch any animal product in those days. Some Christians don't touch even honey, because honey, in an indirect and twisted way, is a sort of an animal product. But definitely no eggs, no milk, no dairy, no fish, no white or red meat, none of those. And in Eastern Christianity, it's still practiced nowadays. If you go in here, the city of St. Nicholas, you'll find that Orthodox Christians don't touch animal products every week on Wednesday and Friday. Wednesday and Friday are the two Lenten days of the week. And some tough ones, like the monks and the nuns in monasteries, they also add Monday to this. 
Monday, Wednesday, Friday, every other day of the week, is Lenten. Not to mention that there are full periods of Lent, like 40 days before Christmas, 40 days before Easter. All in all, there are 217 days of Lent per year, which means more than half of the days of the year are Lent. Lenten days. So, the mother, the family of Nicholas, if they were staunch Orthodox Christians, when Wednesday came, they would refrain from animal products. They would have a bean stew, they would have a bit of other vegetables, salads, something, but not uh, any animal products. Guess what? The legend says, again, it's not verifiable, the legend says that little Saint Nicholas, and little means five days old, Saint Nicholas, was not sucking milk from his mom on Wednesdays and Fridays. Which would mean this little kid was a spirit who in a previous life had also been Christian or there around and practiced it so fanatically that this thing that Wednesday and Friday you don't touch animal products, it got etched into its subconscious mind, into his subconscious mind so deeply that even when he was reborn as a baby, subconsciously, instinctively, the baby didn't go for it. Even the baby was. So this is like a test that has been passed. I'm not saying that it's a test that you should not eat milk or dairy or whatever on Wednesdays and Fridays. This depended entirely on the part of this child, of this soul. But it's like this, like once you passed a test, it doesn't come to you again in the next life, or in the next, next life, or in the next, next, next life, or ever. Because it simply passed. It's simply like you graduated a university. Nobody says if you graduated the university, you should re-graduate it in three years because we are not sure you remember anything. <laughs> it's graduated, it's graduated. You have a piece of paper which attests to the fact that you have graduated a university. If you are a good graduate or not so good, that's completely secondary for the matter. So, the story of spiritual tests is very serious. Because you cannot go further before you pass some things. You cannot go to the exam on pharmacology in medical school before you pass the exam on anatomy in the same medical school. Because to understand physiology and to understand pharmacology, first you have to understand anatomy. So the anatomy comes first. So until you don't pass that difficult exam in anatomy, you don't go further in the curriculum. You can go with a few minor trifles, but still you are blocked. The main things cannot happen before you have graduated anatomy. Therefore, it's the same in the spiritual evolution. Maybe one day you will be asked if you want to take power over the earth, complete absolute power over the earth, like Buddha was, like Jesus was. But not before you have passed many, many other exams. That exam is too big. And the beginners are confronted with other exams. Exams about Ahimsa. 
exams about satya, exams about asteya, theft or no theft, exams about brahmacharya, exams about aparigraha or detachment, all sorts of, not to mention the other five niyamas, which each one of them is bringing their own exams. And thus, spiritual tests are a sort of confrontation with the dark side. Because the dark side comes and says, I think you are still violent. And your soul says, no, 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 I'm over it. And then you can be tested. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, there is a frightening account of the story of Job, which is the archetypal test story, presented in the ways of a challenge between God and the devil. Job is a very religious man living in the Jewish community, and he is highly appreciated. And then, it says that the devil comes to God. Really? Let's stop here for a second. So if God sees the personification of darkness, Lucifer, Satan, something, first of all, is one of them allowed to come and meet the other? And if they come, God then saying, oh my God, you are the asshole who disturbed me. Everything in this universe, why don't I just hit you with a lightning bolt and turn you into ashes so my universe is free of this? No, apparently they are good friends. Apparently they take a coffee from time to time together because they talk. And they talk like uh, competitors, but still they talk. They can have an understanding, which is a very, very shocking thing. I'm not going to bring that up here because it would make all this satsang tonight only about such things. If you have questions in Q&As, I can go deeper into that. Maybe some other time I'll catch some good opportunity for going into this. But in the story of Job, the devil as a person comes to God and says, this guy Job that you think he is such a big deal, uh, he's not. He's not, I know him, I know his soul, I have looked into his soul, and he's a fake. And God says, I beg to differ, I also know his soul, and he's mine, he's one of the good guys. At which the devil says, would you allow me to prove to you that it is not so? Realize, whatever happens from this minute on, it's because the devil politely asks. Can I prove you? And God is so interested in the proof that all the shit which follows, it's completely secondary. That's not what's relevant. You're going to say, oh, poor Job. You are blind. You're just looking at the superficial things. For God, something else is way more important than what actually happened to Job. What happened to Job is Maya. It's a dream in a dream. It does, it's etched on the surface of the water. Now you see it, now you don't. It's completely of no relevance. What is that Job is tested. So, when does the devil go to God and tells him something about you? 
and your turn is coming. And it might not be about something as big as Job, because Job was like, uh, the devil says, he is a faithful, religious, devoted guy, pious guy, because he is having a great time. And you know the British proverb, which says the people, the character of people is known best in adversity. Like when things are nice, everybody is just sugar and cream. And when things are getting shitty, then you see what people are truly made of. When people have just eaten, they are polite. But when people have been hungry for five days, then they are not polite anymore. Then you see what they are made of. And that's why uh, the devil simply tells to God, let me put Job, squeeze him a little bit, and you are going to see, He'll, he will show his brass, he will show his metal. And God says, okay, we have a bet. It's like a bet. They bet on a horse called Job, only that Job is a man, like me and you. He has a soul, he has dreams, he has expectations, he has a family, he has property. Job loses his family. I forgot the details. They die, they go away, it doesn't matter. For him it's terrible anyway. Job loses his family, like children. Why? Everything. Job loses his wealth. He was a wealthy member of the community and he becomes a bum. He's bankrupt. Job loses his health. You lose your body. You lose your wealth. You lose your family. Everything. Like what have you got in the end? Nothing. And Job brilliantly passes this test. He still loves God. Everybody would go and say, it's bad luck over bad luck over bad luck over bad luck. Like, what the fuck does God want with me? <laughs> no, you start thinking that God is uh, angry at you or something. And Job, instead of saying, God, what a jerk you are. Why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? Even if you are not doing it, you are just sitting there and watching and you are allowing it to happen to me. Why? Job is saying that famous sentence which remained legendary through spirituality. It's the aspiration of a man whose Ishvara Pranidana is being tested wonderfully. Job says the famous sentence, God has given, God has taken, all praise be to God. Like he says, when God gave me everything, I praised God. Now that God somehow mysteriously decided to take everything, I still praise God. You cannot expect from God to give or to take, because this is not a bonus party. We are living in this life and we expect God to give us and give us and give us and give us. And if he doesn't, uh, then he's a jerk. No. <laughs> Job is beyond this. He says, either he gave or he took away from me, all glory be to God. I still praise God. And then God could turn to the devil and say, eh? See? 
You know, like you push this guy to the edge. He made it. He's still mine. He's still devoted. What can you do more? Nothing. The test was won. So in this way, that this is an extreme spiritual test, and I cannot even say, I hope that you won't have to undergo such a test. Because ultimately I could tell you that I hope you will have to undergo such a test. Because if not, how will your Ishvara Pranidana be tested? What's happening if some of you did already have this test 150 years ago? Good. Then you won't have to have it now. It's like one exam in your university evolution curriculum, which is in the bag. You've got it already. That's why some people feel very secure about some things. There are people who don't trust themselves when it comes to intoxicants. Alcohol, marijuana, tobacco, whatever, you know, cocaine, heroin, and so on. And there are some people who have absolutely no problem. You ask them, aren't you afraid of this? Or they say, no, nah, I've got no problem. I don't know why, but I know for sure that I'm, I cannot fall under the influence of any of these things. Even if I choose to play with them, I can get out like this. I'm, I'm not. Why? Because such people already passed this test in a previous life, and their subconscious mind remembers and knows. And then they know, this is not my problem. <coughs> what about attachment to money? Hey, ouch. That one, I never really tried that one. You know, so it's like that one, I'm weak on that one. Other people say money? <laughs> I can live all my life with one dollar per day, you know? It's like I can live with no money. Look on the YouTube and this. There are people, even famous, rich people, who demonstrated that they could live for six months and more with one dollar per day or less living in England living in the West, no money. They demonstrated that it's possible, that actually it doesn't matter. So there are people who somehow, they've got this thing that for me, the issue of money, having them or not having them, I'm completely, completely indifferent to this. These people somehow, they have the feeling this is not a test for me. You cannot buy me with money. What about sex? Uh, yeah, maybe with sex, I will collapse. No, I have an excellent sexual partner, and my sexual partner says, either you do yoga, or you live with me. Test, like Buddha's test. Do I choose pussy or dick or whatever it is, or do I choose my spiritual practice? Sometimes you can have a choice. I've seen it in my life when people have a choice between continuing a sexual relationship or choosing their spiritual path instead. And therefore, the exam which you pass will not come back to you. Or if it incidentally comes because you are part of a group and everybody in the group is tested in that way, somehow for you it's a work in the park. It's like, yeah, sure, yeah, I can do it. Like, it never feels like it's difficult or challenging. While some other things can feel, oh, oh, I'm very green 
on this one. On this one, it's like, oh, you know, I don't know. It's a difficult choice for me. So I'm telling you all these things <clears throat> to understand that these spiritual tests, they are exactly like you pass a SASH exam. We want to know if you can go to level four and learn the Laya Yoga, start learning the things which you learn in level four, the sub-levels of the chakras and all that stuff. And therefore for this, you first have to pass the red SASH. If you somehow manage the miracle of not passing the red sash, which is almost a miracle not to pass that one, like you have to be really, really far out there. If you manage to not pass the red sash, then we doubt. It's like, we don't think you are prepared for this, you know. You better stay in the levels one, two, three, practice a little bit more, Try again and again until you reach to the level so that we make sure that you can follow. In the same way the universe wants you to evolve. Each and every one of us is growing up and growing up until you become like Buddha. Until you become like Jesus. Until, why not, let's take a feminine archetype, until you become like Kali, like a goddess. There are some landmarks in evolution, and again, it's too complicated to talk now about this. Join our metaphysical workshop, and in the metaphysical workshop we describe that picture completely in six days. We give you the complete understanding of the process of evolution and life according to metaphysics and spirituality. So, you are in this process, no? and you are growing up. And when you are growing up, there has to be a level which says, now, kindergarten is over. Now, childhood is over. How is that done? It has to be marked in a certain way. For example, in the country where I grew up, when you became 14 years old, they gave you your first ID. You didn't have an ID before 14. You had an ID through your mother and father. But then you get an ID of your own when you are 14. Or like in America where you get a driver's license when you are 16 or something. No, It's like a rite of passage. It's like somebody says, now you have reached this level. From now on it's a different stage in your life. So the same thing happens in your growth. Some of you are more into childhood. Some of you are more into the spiritual adult age, and some of you can be old souls in your spiritual evolution. Although biologically some of you are still young, but your soul can be a very experienced old soul that has passed through many, many tests and through many, many tribulations in many, many lifetimes. And therefore, every time when you reach a spiritual test, there is like a temptation. Are you going to do the right thing or are you going to do the wrong thing? It's like in a red sash photo. Is it answer A or B or C? No, it's a simple test, which is very clear. Is it going to be this or this? In the hermetic tradition, from where most of the Western mysticism evolved, 
the hermetic tradition comes from the Greek name of Hermes, hermetic, Hermes, Hermes Trismegistus, Hermes three times great, as the Greeks called him, Hermes, who is God, Mercury, it's Mercury, the divine, the God, the deity, so Mercury is the messenger of the gods, he brings the knowledge of Hermeticism, and this is how the spiritual tradition started in the West. And at the first original time, they were mostly centered around Egypt. And from Egypt, they irradiated to Babylon, to Chaldea. We, they became the Jewish Kabbalah. They became the Christian Gnosticism. They became the little, the great mysteries and the small mysteries of the Greeks, the Pythagoreic mysteries and all those mystery traditions of the Greeks. Gnostic Christianity, Sufi Islam, all of them are a mixture of Hermeticism plus the religion of the time. But it's like Hermeticism makes that there is an explanation, there is a secret, an esoteric approach to things. And in the Hermetic tradition, the devil is symbolized by number 15 and it is represented in the Egyptian mythology by the Sphinx. A, a being with the body of a lion and the head of a human being who lies down like a big cat, like a lion, and the Sphinx is at the entrance of the temple. So you come to the temple and you say, I came to study the great mysteries. And the Sphinx at the entrance, which is like a dog, a guardian dog, says, not so easy, not so quickly. First, you answer one question, or two questions, or three questions, or 21 questions. And if you know the answer, which is a metaphoric thing, because it's not an intellectual test. It's a metaphoric thing because the question means a test. You are being put in a special situation. And then you answer. And your answer shows if you are ready or not ready. And if you are ready, then the Sphinx said, go ahead, you are welcome to the temple. And if you don't answer, the Sphinx becomes enraged and chases you away. The Sphinx is the devil. The devil is the Sphinx. That's the function of the devil. That's why God never destroys the devil. Because the devil is necessary. Because it's the devil who comes to you and says, won't you just get dead drunk and do something really stupid? And then if you are like Jesus, you say, get out. Go away. No way. Like, are you insane? You know, it's like, it's out of the question. But the devil tried. It is its task to try. The Sphinx has to ask the question, has to provoke. And as such, this is the essence of spiritual tests and temptations. That's why in the moment when Jesus fasted and he was ready to start, he was tempted. The Bible simply says the devil is coming. Most of you take it literally. Like a person somehow materializes or creates a vision of light and probably he has two hoofs and goat legs and he has two horns and a tail hidden under his mantle 
and the ugly looking, uh, classical looking uh, thing appears and that's the devil. Of course, that's complete Walt Disney. That is a Vadistanistic way of imagining that this is how tests happen. Nobody appears. Sometimes there are things just happening in your head. Sometimes you just get a crazy idea where you say, fuck this meditation, it's going to take me nowhere, I give up. That's the devil who is trying to see if you will give up. Because if you are persevering, you say, no, 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 no. And they are going to find me dead here, like Buddha under a tree. They will find me mummified here, still meditating, but I don't give up. Never, ever. Therefore, it's a test, no? But it's presented like it's a Walt Disney event. And one of the monks from the Fathers of the Desert was praying, and as he was praying in the desert, the devil appears to him and he says, what are you praying for? You are not going to get salvation anyway. Did it actually happen physically that somebody appeared and spoke to him? Or was it just a thought which popped up in his mind, but it came from there? At which the old monk passes the test scornfully saying whatever be the state of my soul it can't be as bad as yours who are at the bottom of hell and doomed forever so go fuck yourself and let me pray then the devil put the tail between his legs and went because that was the test that was the correct answer the correct answer is I will continue because it's a test will you do it or will you give up that anybody who did a tapas knows that. Anybody who did a difficult tapas knows that. The more difficult your tapas is, the biggest the temptation is to break it. And usually the, it's biggest in the first minute and in the last minute of it. Like for example, if you decide to fast for 24 hours, you feel like breaking the fast in the morning, or you feel like breaking the fast in the evening before going to bed or something when it's almost finished. So, therefore, take it with a pinch of salt because it is presented as a powerful negative entity called Mara or the devil comes and talks to you. In practice it might not, but not it might. For sure, I tell you that it is not as dramatic of that. That drama is added because this kind of texts are written for humanity, which is a bunch of children on Svadhisthana Chakra. And for Svadhisthanistic people, you have to describe to them religion like a Walt Disney movie. Like the temples in India are. You know, colorful Ganeshas and Skandhas, and you wonder where is Mickey Mouse around here, or where is Donald Duck, you know. Because it's all very colorful and very, you know, almost childish. That's not a coincidence, it's because people's minds are childish. So such a text puts things in a childish way to make sure that everybody can understand. But the meaning of it is very deep. Because Jesus is unleashing his spiritual power 
He has been meeting with John the Baptist and John the Baptist confirmed because when he took the baptism, there was some opening of the skies. Those of you who have been in my previous satsang remember that there was this story with the Holy Spirit descending under the form of a bird, of a dog, and they could hear the voice of God and all that, which is purely internal. Again, it's, it's a drama, but it's about something which is purely internal. It doesn't happen like this externally, except very, very seldom. Very, 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 very seldom. These are all mystical stories which come from inside the soul. And then Jesus realizes it's time to go. It's time to start the engines. And then he feels that he wants to mark it. He wants to say, okay, if I'm... And he does a fast. It's interesting. Why a fast? According to the science of yoga, a long-term fast is activating Vishuddha Chakra. That's one of the secrets of the matter, which is not written uh, much in literature, because the human being that fasts exceedingly much, and we're talking especially more than 10 days, if you go to 20, 21, 28, and more, 40, in this case, then your Vishuddha Chakra has to open, because you have to start absorbing Akasha. You have to start absorbing the ether, the fifth element. If you don't, the fast could become a problem. And that's why fasting, especially when you go beyond 10 days, has very special rules. None of you should attempt fasting more than 10 days without consulting with a person who has done it more than 10 days and who knows the rules of the game. Because there are special rules of the game. When you do such fasting, for example, it would help you to every day work minimum 30 minutes, up till one hour or two hours on Vishuddha Chakra during the fast to compensate. Because if you don't get prana from the food and from the drink, okay, you can get some from the water, because most fasts are with water. Nevertheless, you need some prana from the universe. And that prana from the universe, you take it through Vishuddha Chakra. Vishuddha Chakra is the chakra of purity, among others. And that's why when you fast, there results also a purification. Because you amplify the activation of your Vishuddha Chakra. Fasting is a typical religious method for activating Vishuddha Chakra. A 24-hour fast is just like a grain of sand, and a long fast is pushing the body and the system much further proportionally. When you get over 10 days, it becomes really, really serious stuff. Because then, if you don't do the right things, it can be even dangerous. It can be threatening even to one's health and life. And it is very interesting that in one of his commentaries about the chakra, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who later was called Osho, or Osho Rajneesh, although he was not a very big connoisseur of the chakras, he was not one of the most profound Indian philosophers in terms of chakras. His knowledge of chakras was about 50-50. I wouldn't say superficial, but about 50-50. Nevertheless, Osho Rajneesh says this, 
when you work on the Shuddha Chakra, you are going to undergo some fundamental temptations and the devil will visit you. That's completely synchronized. It is true. When you look at Jesus' thing, Jesus fasts, so does Buddha. Buddha sees that his meditation is not working and he decides not even to eat or anything. He says, I shall not get up from under this tree. Even if I die, I will just stay here and meditate. And obviously, among others, he had not been eating for a few good days. And he was not very fat before. So he was on low resources, and now he decides to just go the full Monday. Then, of course, one of the things is that he's fasting. His Vishuddha is open. Then Mara comes and tempts him. As you eat for 40 days, the first thing which happens is that you'd say it's a purification. But it's a purification which takes you to the next level. And at the next level, then to pass to the next level, there has to be some challenge. So Jesus is challenged. You are going to say, we could predict he's going to win. Yes, but the beauty of it is that he does it anyway. He runs the race. You could say, why did he need to be born out of a woman? He could just materialize out of the blue, like a form of life, and just talk for two months non-stop and teach and teach and teach, and then go. But then it wouldn't have had the same effect. Because you wouldn't have said God became a human being, and he lived my life and your life. He was a baby, they had to change his diapers, they had to, you know, and so on. He peed himself, they gave him breast milk, and it's like... Why did he have to do that? Precisely to play the rules of the game. Even in temptation, Jesus assumes the flesh body of a human being. He does things like a human being. And he's tempted. All human beings are tempted. Jesus is tempted. Uselessly. But he is nevertheless tempted. In his case, the Sphinx could have stood aside and said, come on, you don't need any get inside. But no, he said, let's do the game. Let's play the game. Pretend you are asking me the question. And I pretend I'm going to give you the answer. Because that's the law of life. That's the law of evolution. That's the law of spiritual life. All those of you have been born at a certain level. And you would like to come and do yoga, and when you die, you would like to be at a higher level. Well, to get from point A to point B, there will be some hoops. You have to go through a few hoops. There will be some tests. Not because I want it, so that's the way Mother Nature is built. And for this reason, this issue with Jesus archetypally being tested, it's very, very meaningful. So, our text here says Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he had received the Holy Spirit, but if Jesus was God, what Holy Spirit he needed? It's a very, very vague allusion. It's very beautiful that a great saint in the 19th century, a great Russian saint called Seraphim, Seraphim from Sarov, Sarov is someplace north of Russia, 
So this guy was living far in the cold northern Russia. Serafim from Saro was asked by a man who was the disciple of his, but he didn't have much theological knowledge, this disciple. And he said, in your own words, like I don't want to read it in the Bible, in your own words, he said, what is the meaning of the life of being a Christian? This he was asking from a saint who was a prophet and an enlightened saint, a great man. Like, what's your opinion? Don't give me what's written in the book. And Seraphim gave a wonderful answer, which is like taken from texts of Kundalini Yoga. Seraphim said the meaning of like, what does it mean to truly be a Christian is that you have to accumulate in huge amounts the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit is like monopoly money. The Holy Spirit is like some sort of credential. It's like a credit point. You have a lot of Holy Spirit when you show up to the gate of paradise they say, oh, you've got a lot of Holy Spirit. Get right in. You haven't got Holy Spirit. Sorry. You don't fulfill the criteria. Like he describes it in such a down-to-earth mechanical way. It's almost like a mechanical thing. Of course, accumulating Holy Spirit is not at all a mechanical process. And I said it comes like from Kundalini Yoga because it is related with the concept of Kundalini Shakti. In yoga, Kundalini Shakti is the one which gives us access to the Holy Spirit. Kundalini Shakti, when she goes to Sahasrara, the pure Shakti, the Uma Shakti, the Spanda Shakti, that's the Holy Spirit. And therefore, it has to be accumulated into a large amount. Simple, like Seraphim from Sarov gives like a yogic answer. He says, "How? what does it mean you are a great Christian? That you have accumulated a lot of Holy Spirit. Like what's your account? How big is your account of Holy Spirit? No? People don't even ask themselves this question because they are not even aware of that, of the presence of that. When you work a lot on Sahasrara, when you rise your kundalini to sahasrara and keep it there, then you start being aware of the fact that you are getting spiritual access, that something is opening for you precisely because of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that Seraphim echoed this expression from the Bible, that Jesus, now full of the Holy Spirit, okay, so there was a moment when somehow there was a grace from God. The grace opened up and said to Jesus, go. Like he could feel that now he was oozing, that now he was humming with it. And in a humble way, just before superficially going, they said, oh my God, I'm so full of it. Now, first he says still, let me be with myself, because it's a big leap. And he goes alone, to be alone for 40 days. And in 40 days, he doesn't even want food. He wants his Vishuddha Chakra to be open. He wants to be pure. He wants to have very little telluric energy. 
He wants to be connected to the cosmic energy because after 40 days of fast, you are halfway dead already. You are already halfway leaving your body. Also, you are very little related to the telluric energy because the food is bringing us a lot of telluric energy. And he's living on air. He's a Bretarian, basically. He's living on oxygen. And he nevertheless does this. He was led by the spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. The text is vague here because it says not only that in the end there was the cherry on top of the cake. Right. Okay. Final questions. And then go. But it's like all the 40 days, he, he may have been te tested with lesser things all that period of time. Like, don't forget, Jesus was born in a human body, manufactured by Virgin Mary, out of flesh and blood. This body was human. It needed to eat, it needed to breathe oxygen, it was occasionally peeing and defecating. It was just a body with the functions of a body. And his brain was, although you can say, okay, this was a very, very great quality purified brain because his mental body was something outstanding. Nevertheless, his brain was a brain, like one of us. That brain, of course, became uh, modified. It became moved, shaped, trained. But it was a human brain to start with. And that brain, what is one of the functions of the mind and of the brain? Doubting, thinking, wondering. René Descartes put it, no, dubito ergo cogito. I doubt, therefore I think. If I don't doubt, it means I don't think. I have serious misgivings and oppositions to the statement of Descartes, because Descartes was not a very spiritual man, he was just intelligent, but not spiritual, and because of that, Descartes missed some very important part of the reality. But nevertheless, he gave a hint of something else. So, do you think that Jesus, after 15 days of fasting, he said, I'm standing here, long-haired and bearded, like a hippie, I'm getting hungry, a bit thirsty, maybe. My body feels a little bit like shit because of all these toxins which are eliminated by the body. And I'm thinking 15 days ago I was filled up with Holy Spirit and I'm supposed to shake the world, go to people and rub it in their faces. And uh, what if I'm just a schizophrenic idiot? Do you think he could have doubted? Of course he could, because he had a brain. And the brain is made to come pop up with crazy ideas and say, but what if it's not going to work? Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't do it if it's not going to work. No? So, indeed, for the whole period of time while Jesus stayed, he probably had thoughts which were ups and down, pro and con, back and forth. But then this thing becomes acute after 40 days. He is in the last day. 40 days is a traditional measure in the Bible 
Moses did things in 40 days and other and other patriarchs did things in 40 days. 40 days to 49 days is a very important cycle of the etheric body, exactly the pranic body. So when you don't eat, the pranic body must step forward and supplement for the prana, which you don't get from the food. You start to get it directly from the universe. So it is something about the pranic body. That's why it's 40 days. And when 40 days passed, then Jesus was subjected to three tests. Three questions, three requests, personified by the devil. These are spiritual tests of the major league. Like Jesus is not tested about kindergarten things. Like violence, non-violence, truthfulness, no truthfulness. These are kindergartens. Jesus had passed those, to say the least, had passed those long, long time ago. Now, this is what you will get subjected when you will get to the brink of having some planetary mission. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Like, you are hungry? There was a story that the Jews lived in the desert for 40 years, and they were feeding some dust on the stones, the manna, in the desert. They didn't have agriculture and fertile fields. And therefore, the devil simply says, do the same thing which the Jews did. Like, it's not that outrageous. The Jews lived by divine miracle for 40 years. You, after 40 days, you could ask for a little bit. Not a big deal. At which Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. Which is a great, superb answer. He says, you, the devil, as a personification of everything which is telluric, materialistic, heavy, you're just giving me this shit like, I'm hungry and I have to eat something. Why is that so important for you? You, the devil, you can see nothing but survival on Mulakara. Eat, eat, eat. And all the other things, you know, get money, get comfort, get this, get that. Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone. Like, later, he tells the same thing to his disciples. He says, do not get tempted by the bread of the Phariseans. Phariseans were Jewish philosophers who were having a very complex philosophy bordering on Kabbalah, and people felt impressed, like, oh my God, those people. And Jesus said, don't get tempted by the bread of the Phariseans. They have power, they have temples, they are going to impress you with materialistic luxury, like the Catholic Church does today, with huge cathedrals, organs, and everything squashing you under its luxury and abundance. But the question is, where is the spirit? One of the great saints of the Sinai finds itself projected in a sort of a physical astral projection in the room of one of the bishops of Rome. And he finds the bishop in a room full with coffers full of gold. And the bishop a little bit embarrassed because suddenly he finds in his room an ascetic from the desert. 
which miraculously has popped up, materialized there. And the bishop says, brother, I'm glad you came to Rome, and so on. You see our church has changed a lot, has progressed a lot. And he shows him the money, you know, the boxes full of money. And he says, now we are not like 300 or 500 years ago, where we had to hide in the catacombs and were chased like animals and so on. At which the old man from the desert says, yeah, but now can you take a lame man on a stretcher and tell him to stand up and he will walk? Right. The ascetic comes with his ascetic. He says, you guys have gained in material power and you have lost all the spiritual power precisely because you feel comfortable and not. We live in the desert and we don't know if we are going to have food tomorrow. We live at the mercy of God and of the elements. And we can tell to paralyzed people, stand up and go home. So it's spiritual power versus material power. In Tantra, those two are not opposite, but here you are not in Tantra. This is a teaching which is severely dualistic. And in this dualistic thing, the devil says, since you are hungry, why don't you use your divine connection to alleviate your hunger? And Jesus says that's not what the divine connection is made for. It has other priorities. Man is not, does not live on bread alone. Like, I will not uh, put the priorities in your way. Jesus basically passes the test that first is the spirit. If you are the son of God, making bread out of stones is not your first priority. Others are the priorities. And therefore, he demonstrates his discrimination. The devil then led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. This was like clairvoyance, like a vision. The same happened to Buddha. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will be all yours. Right. You can have the earth. All. For how long? For a very, very long time. What is interesting here is what I was alluding to before. Even in those days, this was 2000 something years ago. Even in those days, today we are much later in Kali Yuga. Even in those days, who had the power to give everything on earth? The devil. Which means the temporary boss, the vikar of God on earth is the devil. The devil has been given the power. He says it very clearly. I will give you all their authority and permit for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So when Chaos has the power to build a pyramid, when George W. Bush has the power to start wars, these are not coming from God. The worldly power 
does not belong to Jesus. If Jesus would have had worldly power, would anybody have crucified him in the end? That's why Jesus says, you say, I want to be a king, and I am, but I'm not a king of this world. Because if I would be the king of this world, my servants, my soldiers would have come and saved me already. You would have not laid hands on me. So in this world, he tells to his captors, you have the power, which means the devil. Somewhere, the devil in the Bible is called the prince of this world. Does it mean God has no power? No, it's just a game. The temporary game. It, of course, God has the absolute power. But for a while, especially in Kali Yuga, the power has been given to the demonic forces. It's like a seesaw. When it's spiritual, God has the. But then as you go into the Treta Yuga and Dvapara Yuga and Kali Yuga, it becomes like this. And then spiritual people like Rumi, like Buddha, like Milarepa, like Jesus, they apparently have no power. They keep on speaking about the power, which is absolute, and which they have. And then when you look more carefully, you say, how the heck are they powerful? Like maybe a little bit the Dalai Lamas held power for about 800 years in Tibet. And even then, there was challenges because the Gelugpas with the Dalai Lama, they were having a little internal war with the, the Gelugpas, the yellow-head lamas, they were having a little war with the Kargyutpas, with the red-head lamas of the Karmapa. And the Panchen Lama, who was the leader of another school of Tibetan Buddhists, didn't like both of those. So there are three major lamas in Tibet, and one of them was considered king, but a king with a question mark, because there were two other very big lamas in Tibet, the Karmapas and the Panchen Lamas, who didn't really respect 100% the authority of the Dalai Lama. They were, okay, he's the king who lives in Lhasa, but spiritually, it's like, okay, we are better than him. So even the Dalai Lama, although he had some temporal power, first of all, that power had to disappear. It was wiped out. It couldn't resist in the 20th century. Even like this in the 20th century, it was a miracle. Like Alexandra David, Neil, and other people who traveled to Tibet, they were like, oh my God. You know, it's like Tibet. It's like nothing you've seen. It was special, and even that was way too much for the modern world. There are a few other cultures in which there is some spiritual leadership, like Mahatma Gandhi was trying to bring spiritual leadership to India. He managed to do the minimum necessary to cross that red line of independence and to stop the violence in uh, Bengal and West Bengal and so on, and then he got shot. Like he took so much karma upon himself because India didn't deserve, almost didn't deserve a man like Gandhi. Gandhi was a man of miracle for the 1940 India, and he kind of took 
a big cross on his shoulder. He managed to cross the finish line. But then everybody said, can you imagine what would have happened if Gandhi would have lived another five years, another ten years? What would he have brought to India? Because now he was finally having success. Now he was in charge. Now he could start teaching the nation. It was too much, too much already for Kali Yuga. So Gandhi didn't make it. The Dalai Lama and Tibet didn't make it. Remained as a marginal and Dalai Lama still lived. But it's a marginal phenomenon. They are not in their country with their roots and with everything at their disposal as it was before. Others and others are there and they are very controversial. No? Like if the Prophet Muhammad was coming from God, then the Islamic teachings are correct. The Quran is correct. And anybody who abides by the Quran is correct. Then it means that the Ayatollah Khamenei of Iran is 15 times more spiritual than David, Donald Trump, or than Angela Merkel. That's not a very comfortable thought. Is that Ayatollah aligned with the Quran? Is the Quran aligned with Muhammad? Is Muhammad aligned with God? If the answer is yes to all those three questions, then, then maybe it's more spiritual to live in Iran. It's true that you don't have social freedoms, but social freedoms are leading to a lot of abominations in the society. They are very pleasant for our ego, but they are not necessarily the spiritual thing. I have come from a country where I lived for 28 years under dictatorship and communism. I can tell you that much of the spiritual practice of the people in those 28 years, it was much more serious than in the years that followed. Like freedom brought a decrease of the spiritual level. People became uh, tempted by making business instead of praying to God. So, therefore, it's always a big question to ask yourself, what is this? Because most people are Svadistanistic and they bow down in front of authority. If Angela Merkel or Macron or the European Council or the President of America or Madonna or George Clooney or some says something, it's like, oh, George Clooney said, you are just a lemming. You are a Svatistanistic lemming. You are not thinking with your brain. You are just a groupie. You are a fan who loves to follow. And unfortunately, in Kali Yuga, even at that time, the authority, the power, the splendor is in the wrong hands. Remember that it was the Jewish king of that time who caught John the Baptist and cut his head. Should an asshole of a king, that king was an asshole. 
he killed his own brother to fuck his wife. Just one of them. I don't know how many other things he did. But he stole his wife, the wife of his brother, and because he couldn't do it in a different way, he killed him. So he was an asshole for at least this one, probably for many, many other things. Why would there be a world, a planet, in which an asshole has the power to lay hands on John the Baptist? That's an outrage. It's an outrage that John the Baptist should come to the whim and the disposition of an asshole. And still that's exactly how things work 2,000 years ago, and it's much worse today. It's worse than that. That's why here it's very, very important for you to meditate. The people who are not living into tantric conditions, they make a very simple twist of mind. They simply say, okay, so if I go with Jesus, or if I go with Krishna, or if I go with Buddha, then I know that I'm going to be poor, without social power, and marginalized. Because as soon as you talk about power and glory, that doesn't belong to the spiritual people. The Catholic Church broke from the Universal Church in the year 1060, 65 or whatever it was, and then it became very, very manipuristic. And it started making war, conquest. People say, but the Christian Church has been an asshole. Not until the year 1000. Please study your history. The Christian church was almost invisible until the year 1000. But finally, when it became the Roman Catholic Church, it got money, it got power, then it started building those Gothic cathedrals and everything, and then it became very manipulistic, very powerful, but the degree of spirituality decreased a lot. 200 years later, they started with crusade, then another 200 years later, they started with inquisition, and all that shit. Which, for example, in the Orthodox Church of Russia, there were no crusade, no inquisition, nothing of the kind. Because they were trying not to go in Manipura. They were trying not to rule the world from Manipura. So people like those, following in the footsteps of this, they would say, okay, if I choose to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, then I choose to become like the Lamb of God. No power. People will abuse me, will spit on me, will mock me. I will never have the big money. I will not have power. And but I will have the Holy Spirit. Occasionally, spiritual people do get some power. Like I said, Mahatma Gandhi, the Dalai Lamas, even the Christian Church. You cannot make things black and white. Let's take the Catholic Church, which is typical for this, and I spoke about it. It became powerful. The first thing when the so-called democracy and modernism came with the French Revolution and with the creation of United States of America across the ocean, 
what did they do? Take the power, the money, the land, everything from the church. Ruin the church. And then if Rockefeller has more money than the Pope, then Rockefeller runs the game, not the Pope. Because it's the money who runs the game in Kali Yuga, and especially in the industrial capitalist epoch of humanity. And therefore, it was like this, like the, the Catholic Church was not completely non-spiritual. In the 20th century, you had a man called Padre Pio. In the 19th century, you had a woman called Teresa of Lisieux and a few others. And no, no, like there were here and there saints still appearing in Christianity. So Christianity was like a tree which was almost dried up, but still producing a flower here and there. Still not dead completely. That tree was not supposed to have money, land, power. Even today, when the hypocrisy is used again, in every Hollywood movie or this, this you are being told that the church is still too rich. The blasted people called the Catholics, they have printing press. They have a bank. They have... It's too much because the demons hate that somebody can print clearly the prayers of Saint Basil the Great. The demons would want to see the prayers of Saint Basil the Great burned to ashes. And then there will be a few Christian people who say, would like to print the prayers of Saint Basil the Great, but we have no money. It's too expensive for us, such an endeavor. Like, the fact that there is some richness or temporal power associated with spiritual people drives the demonic forces nuts. Nuts. Because, according to them, Spiritual people should be like prisoners, like slaves, like tied up like this and not have the power to move. They should be isolated, marginalized. Like, yes, we can't stop you from meditating and doing prayer and so on, but at least we can throw you the fuck out of our society so you don't disturb our work here. This is the meaning of it. That's why every time when there is an opposition to it, it's like a fight with a demon. For example, the Catholic Church has tried to compensate for this. In the early 20th century, they realized, wait a second, these people who keep kicking us in the balls, and we say, peace on you, brother, peace on you, yes, yes, peace on you. Christian, you know, uh, spirit, uh, turn the other cheek as well, you know. But why we turn the other cheek? These people who give us shit, they have the money, they have the government, they have the army, they have the military, they have this, they have that. What can we do? And then a very smart Spanish guy, he simply said, we could summon up all the loyal Christian Catholic people that are still alive and kicking, and we could find among them the few of them which are smart capitalists and have money and power and make them into a sort of a banking, industrial money branch of the Catholic Church. And he did. It was called Opus Dei. That's the famous Opus Dei. 
which the Hollywood movies demonize all the time. All the time. Because Opus Dei was the attempt of the Catholic Church to play Monopoly, to play game. Like, okay, if in the 20th century the name of the game has become money, then we are going to show you that the Catholic Church is not stupid and it can play the game of money while we still do prayers and whatever we do. We can also get the money because we will have a few Catholics who are great industrialists and great bankers and they can do karma yoga for the Catholic Church. They can do service, social service, no selfless service for their beloved church. Oh my God. The prayers of Padre Pio, the demons go like, Padre Pio, yeah, what would be like? No, like you can scorn him and make him look ridiculous. But Opus Dei, uh, Opus Dei is a real threat for the prince of this world, you know, because it's somebody who competes on their own turf. And I hope you understand what this game is all about. It's a big, big story. It's a big, big teaching that comes to us from Jesus indirectly because even Mara did the same. Mara, the demon, the devil, is telling to Buddha, you worship me, forget about God, and I give you the world. You cannot give what you don't have. The demon proposes to Jesus to give him all the authority and splendor because he has it. This is a sad story which should, because it shows what the dominant frequency is in Kali Yuga. I told you, spiritually it can sound very depressive, but it isn't. It's exactly like you say, it's winter, we are in Romania, and the average temperature outside is sub-zero. So any one of you who tries to grow up a daffodil or a tulip is an idiot. You cannot grow out their tulips and daffodils. You have to wait for the spring. Every intelligent gardener knows that. Ah, if you had a greenhouse with controlled climate, then in the greenhouse, exceptionally, you could grow a few tulips and a few daffodils, even in January or in February. Spiritual people know that because we are in Kali Yuga, the prince of this world is who it is. And because of this, they know there is no tulips and daffodils out there. We live in a world which is deeply in Kali Yuga, the naive, candid, hopeful Paramahansa Yogananda and his guru Yukteswar, they thought that Kali Yuga was finished in 1930-something. Now we have lived 80-something years through that century, a century almost, and we know Kali Yuga was far from being finished. It was just wishful thinking. The astrological calculations of Yukteswar obviously must have been wrong because Kali Yuga was not over in 1930 and as far as we can see when we look what's happening it's not over even today and as such Kali Yuga only got deeper from 1930 it, it's going downhill 
until the break point where it will change. And that's why the idea is that if this was the case at the time of Buddha, and if this was the case at the time of Jesus, it still is. That's why spiritual people, you know, they say, they always look with certain skepticism on power. I want to give you a controversial example, which I personally have seen wonderful things done by that person. So I'm not accusing the person, I'm just showing you a way of thinking. Like a man like Deepak Chopra is a multi-multi-multi-millionaire because he lives the American dream. Then Ramakrishna would say he must be serving the devil. Somewhere, somehow. Because the devil wouldn't have allowed him to become so powerful and so wealthy because exactly of this. The only people who get access to the devil are the people who serve the other side. There is another story with God and Mammon. There are other examples with a rich man and so on, which Jesus gives, in which he puts it in equally bitter terms. This teaching, if, if I was here preaching catechism in the name of the Orthodox or Catholic Church, and actually my secret purpose would be to see if some of you are not interested to become monks or nuns in our monastery then I would give it from the beginning, right? When you want to become a monk, you have to make a vow of poverty. Like the Buddhist brothers here, you own a robe and a begging bowl. And all the rest you beg and you have nothing. It's like the Dharma of the spiritual people in Kali Yuga. You have to be poor and inconsequential. Because if you become too influential, then it's not Kali Yuga anymore. You make too much wave. Tulips start growing, but then it's not winter anymore. The winter is over. So when you will see that true spirituality is multiplying, and not hypocrisy, not religious dogma, not fanaticism, not idiots, not cheaters and hypocrites, when real spirituality, like Padre Pio, like Milarepa, like Rumi, when the real spirituality, Teresa Avadila, to give female names as well, not to say I'm the masculine only, when you see that multiplying, then you can take a deep breath, because it's not Kali Yuga anymore. Until then, the contrary will happen. Padre Pio was, in my opinion at least, the real deal. Like a spiritual man with divine connection. You know what happened? Miraculously. Because apparently they say that the Pope from Rome liked him. Good. The Pope liked him. Guess what happened? He was given papal decree that he should be forbidden to serve the Mass because he appears in public and he's too charismatic. He should not even say, he was a priest. He says, if you don't allow me to serve the mass, then what should I do? Cut my throat, you know, it's like I'm a priest of Christ. Yeah, you are a priest, but you cause us too much problems because you are too popular. And people are coming too much to you instead of coming to Rome. You become the new Rome and we can't have that. 
So uh, you have a little bit of a tapas. You have a tapas from the Holy Father. The tapas is you don't show up. People can see you only five minutes per day at a window somewhere in a monastery. Far, far away. You don't serve the Mass. You don't administer confessions or other rites. And people cannot talk to you. Basically, he was a prisoner in a monastery for 20 years. Because he was challenging the popularity of the Pope and of the Catholic Church. The prince of this world. Even the Catholic Church, which claims that it wants more Padre Pios and more Teresa of Avilans, when they get one, they garrote him. They put him in a hole. But if Padre Pio, why didn't they bring him to Rome? To do a lot of miracles, to sit by the right hand of the Pope and to be his... You know, and then people would have, like, why didn't they choose a constructive method to say, if we've got a guy like Padre Pio, let's use him. Because it's rare that we get such people. They locked him into a monastery for his own good, for his own modesty, to make sure that the devil doesn't make him become too arrogant. Shit. And meanwhile, the prince of this world got his design fulfilled. Like whenever there appeared a spiritual man, he was a dangerous man, and somehow the devil manipulated the whole institution and the whole society that the dangerous man, his efficiency, got diminished. Yeah, you can have a tulip now and then, but let's not forget it's winter. It's winter. Don't disturb the winter. It's supposed to be winter, and you and I cannot stop the winter from being there. Therefore, understand these things so if you were in a Christian environment, then you would automatically say, I have to be chaste, I have to be poor, I have to be obedient. And then like Padre Pio, people will not even know about me, even 50 years after I die, people will hardly know I existed. Like why doesn't Padre Pio make a huge social impact? And Madonna does or Michael Jackson died, or even better, what's the name of this fighting guy? This big boxer from America, Mike Tyson. There are documentaries about the life of Mike Tyson. You know, a hooligan, a blowhead, you know, that's the ideal of our world. You know, a rapist, condemned rapist, claims he didn't do it anyway. No, like, what are we talking about? So, if you were in a Christian environment or something similar, dualistic, then you would say, okay, so I know that I am in Kali Yuga. I have chosen the bad time to be a spiritual person in Kali Yuga. In Kali Yuga, spiritual persons are not welcome very much. So I'm going to be the weirdo. I'm going to be the the weird person in the box. But there is also a tantric mentality. And the tantric mentality tries not to divide the universe into black and white. Tries to unify it, a monistic philosophy, which simply doesn't say, oh, if you have money, then you are with the devil. 
So is there a way to have things about sex, money, other forms of power, and still not be corrupted by it? Ah, at least in your greenhouse. Like you make a greenhouse, and in that greenhouse you have tulips. And everybody says, there are no tulips in the winter. Well, actually there are somewhere, but it's a very, very secretive place. It's a private place belonging to somebody, and you guys don't get to know that there are tulips in the winter, but in a very special place. Would it be possible to have amazing spiritual things? Yes, as long as you do not provoke too much. As long as you don't become too visible. Tibet was too visible, and it couldn't make it. Other things, Mahatma Gandhi was too visible. They couldn't make it. So therefore, today, some of the tantric gurus which are there, they say, look, we could cope, like Swami Shivananda. He was not 100% tantric, and when he became old, he became more and more Vedantic, because he was not able to teach the sexual part of Tantra in the place where he lived in India, and so on. But that someone, he was younger, he was interested and studied a little bit of this Tantra, and so on. And he said, you know, nobody prevents me, Swami Shivananda, from having tons of money and making an ashram, a university, a printing press, this, that. No? And Swami Shivananda had this financial talent that he made a lot of stuff. And he didn't become devilish. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, who was more like the Christian mystics, he got to such a point of hysteria against money that Ramakrishna Paramahamsa could not touch money without feeling physically burned. Some people even tried to play pranks to verify if you are like they were cared. They pretended they took him careless and they put some money in his hand without him knowing that it was money. And he still, ah, he got burned, like what is this? It burned and it was a coin. So Ramakrishna didn't want to touch money. Swami Shivananda, 50 years later, or 60, 100 years later, he touched a lot of money. He made buildings and ashrams and printing presses and hospitals and this, must have been a lot of money. So did Padre Pio, by the way, you know, he built a hospital and other things and stuff, and they did not get corrupted by it. So the tantric tradition mitigates and says, be smart and realize that you are in Kali Yuga. Being in Kali Yuga, you will not manage to stop the winter everywhere, because it's beyond your will, it's not your decision. You can try but be prepared to get fucked. So you can always try. If you're right not to believe me, and not to believe in these stupid scriptures from India, or Tibet, who say that we are in Kali. No, no, these are self-fulfilling prophecies. No, it's a negative way of thinking, good, I'm glad you are smart and positive, then show me. I'll demonstrate that they were wrong. Show me, do something amazing, and I'll be the first one to take off my invisible hat, and to say, I respect what you have done. Nobody thought it was possible. I respect, you know, and so on. But you can do local exceptions. Local exceptions, like a greenhouse effect. 
a greenhouse effect is possible. That's why it is possible tantric gurus believe that it is possible that you should not interpret mechanically this law. That, my goodness, we live in a fucked up world in Kali Yuga where everybody who is rich and powerful must be a Freemason and a Satanist and the servant of the devil, and all the people who are spiritual are persecuted, looked down upon, and they must be poor and socially inconsequential. The money, instead of going to Padre Pio, goes to Michael Jackson. You know, it's Kali Yuga. Tantric gurus believe that you can make an exception to this. But you have to be careful about how you do it, because if you try to propagate it on a general level, you might get slapped over the head, because you cannot stop the winter from raining. If the winter, so to speak, the spiritual winter has to rain for another 300 years on the face of this earth, you and I cannot stop it. We can try, and if we take a cross and we sacrifice, we might make the spring come here 50 years before, which is a lot. Like instead of another 300 years of Kali Yuga, because you and I and 10 other people die on a cross next month, then the Satya Yuga will come to 250 years instead of in 300 years. Some of you say, oh, come on. It's a deal. Some people are ready to do that. In Christianity, more than 50,000 people died of martyrdom so that the message of Jesus should be accepted by the world. That's the meaning of those thousands and tens of thousands of martyrs who died, assassinated shamefully, horribly. They died so that Christianity becomes possible. It was the price of blood, because otherwise in the winter, even Christianity wouldn't have been there. And the same was about other spiritual traditions. I'm not going there for the time being, as it's not relevant here. And thus, tantric gurus believe we are different. So in a local way, we could make an exception. Like if you and I would buy an island in Greece, or in the Philippines, we could secede and create our own police and government and currency, and we could create a butt-naked Tantra kingdom, where we can have group sex and Tantra and meditation and read spiritual books and go around naked and do whatever we want, without people from outside saying, oh, you are just a bunch of Hare Krishna, you are just a bunch of hippies, this is a sect, it's a sex cult, it's this, it's that, you know, and so on. It could be done. As long as it doesn't become too big and too visible. Because it's still winter and the winter cannot stop. I, for one, I wish that the Kali Yuga was finished in 1930, as Yukteswar said. It wasn't. Honestly, from everything I have observed in my whole life, it's far from being over. And thus, uh, this thing, which Jesus, this second temptation of Jesus, is very powerful. Because many, I've met many people who say, I want to believe in spirituality. 
And then the next step is, I want to believe in a spirituality which is successful, glorious, rich, good-looking, and accepted by the Washington Post. That according to Jesus and to Buddha, there isn't. According to a Jesus temptation, if it's in the Washington Post, it's the devil's work. Look at it in, in down-to-earth ways. There are, there's a guy now who has a huge campaign on the net. There are at least 10 different ways of healing cancer. Demonstrated in hundreds and thousands of cases, obviously. Macrobiotic diet, fasting, acid alkaline, energization by yoga, and a few others. Methods which have worked with, with severe cancer in different things. None of them get in the Washington Post. It's all of it, some forbidden nutcakes who talk bullshit, and they should be, all of them, thrown in prison because they are dangerous people who advise people not to vaccinate their children, and they advise people not to take chemotherapy when they discover they have a cancer, and all that. It's exactly this counterculture. It's exactly this underground culture. Spirituality is relegated to the underground for now. And if some of you says, no, no, I don't want to be going to the catacombs, like the rat. I want a spiritual path which is respected. Like I want to see that my leader, the Pope, or the chief rabbi, or whoever, is a figure which shakes hands with the presidents of the state and is greatly respected. This story says that probably they are all kissing the ass of the devil. There isn't. If it's famous and successful and approved, then it's subjected to the prince of this world and it's a lie. It's a hypocrisy. It's a delusion that people think, oh, I'm part of a great religion. Yeah, sure. What would Jesus say about it? We don't want to know. No? So, and in this, and on the contrary, sometimes when you become like this, there is a one of the Christian saints, if I remember correctly, it's Peter of Damascus, who says, persecution is sent to us to teach us a lesson and to give the measure of things and so on. And he said, if you are practicing spirituality and if you are not persecuted, then be alarmed because something is really wrong. Because it means you are not pissing off the devil, and the devil is not fighting against you, he's not trying to put you down. And that's a very bad sign, because it means the devil feels very comfortable about you. So actually, when you get persecuted, that's the most sure sign that you are doing the right thing. It's exactly the reverse way of thinking about this kind of stuff. Again, in a dualistic religious environment, like that one of Jesus, that would be literally true. When I was young and I did not study Kashmiri Shaivism and these, and my teachers were teaching me dualistic spirituality, which is the best to start with, that's why I think the message of Jesus is really good in the beginning, I thought exactly like this. 
I was laughing with one of our pupils in the school, who is a young man who has some strong aspiration and who is coming partly from the Islamic environment. And I told him, if you wouldn't be in Agama, you would have gone with the ISIL, with the people from the Islamic State. You know? Because those are the people that are hot and fanatic. Of course, they are a bunch of murderous thugs. But they, in their own philosophy, they think that they are the counter-strike, that they are the underground, that they are the anti-system, that America is the great Satan, and they are the ones who still do the work of God. Therefore, in the non-tantric environment, that mentality prevailed. That nowadays in Kali Yuga, it's like a test from God, that if you want to show that you are devoted to God, you have to become poor, humble, inconsequential, unseen, everything, because the humble ones will be exalted, and the proud ones shall be debased, and so on. The last shall be the first, and the first shall be the last. These things are still coming exactly from Jesus and from the Bible. This mentality is full on in the message of Jesus. Here, being in a tantric school, you might be feel at conflict. Like we are teaching the message of Jesus, and on the other hand, we are not trying to teach a self-punishing way of life. That's because the message of Jesus here is complemented, is added with Kashmiri Shaivas, Monism, and other high tantric doctrines which allow us to understand exactly what Jesus meant to say. Like, yes, we are in Kali Yuga. Yes, it's winter out there. Yes, the devil is the prince of this world for the time being. Not in Satya Yuga, but now in Kali Yuga. Yes. Yes, there are no tulips and daffodils out there. And if we want a little bit of tulips and daffodils, we can make a secret garden in which there will be tulips and daffodils. And as long as that secret garden is not very provocative, we can live like this. I'm going to give you a similar example. I know it's getting a bit late. Just bear with me another 5-10 minutes. Just because it's a parallel example. There is in the world of conspiracy theories, there is of course the conspiracy theory, which is partly true in my opinion, that the world is run by money, that the bankers and all the money people are the ones who are really in charge, like not Barack Obama and these people are in charge, but Morgan, Rockefeller, Rothschild, these are the real, the 300 major players who are not in the front line, you never get to see them. Rothschild is a baron producing wine in France. Nobody. That nobody is one of the people who runs the world, but you think Trump does. Trump is a joke compared to Roth Rothschild and Rockefeller and these families. These people are front. So the world is run by the financial people, and these financial people have corrupted the world of money in all sorts of miserable ways, using usury and other, and other, and other things, so that normal people are completely handicapped by money. Even when people come to yoga, one of their main obstacles is, I don't have money. 
I wish I could stay there. Even my obstacle is money. Because if I had enough money, I would build an ashram for 300 people. And when you would come here, if you'd be loyal, and if you really would have aspiration and want to study yoga, I would allow you to live for free. So you wouldn't have to, and I would give you food. Maybe not caviar and champagne, but some food for you to have every day. So theoretically, you could come and stay here for three months or whatever for free. Just do your yoga. Just focus on what is important for you. Even I don't have that kind of money to allow you to do that, to be able to do it. If I one day will get an extraordinary donation from somebody, I will make it happen. Every guru wants to make this happen, that people can stay. And no, it's, it's not intended. Here, when you come to Agama, a lot of things are free. Kirtans, bhajans, satsangs, you know, because it's not meant to be for money. Of course, Agama has to exist financially. We pay rent for this land. We have to build this hall. We have to pay for electricity and to print your courses. So, of course, Agama has a part which is financially there that it has to survive. But on the other hand, it could be much more. If I would have the money which the Catholic Church has to make a monastery for you, you would come and live in the monastery and the only thing asked from you would be to observe the rules of the monastery, to behave. And then you could come and live for free. Because I'm not interested to be a hotel owner and to make you pay hotel fees to me. It's not my dharma in this world to own a hotel. No? I want to educate spirituality. So, what I'm trying to say with these things is <clears throat> the tantric tradition believes that certain little exceptions up within certain reasonable limits are possible. And I was giving you the example of this financial conspiracy. And most of the people with money and the people that they control, which is journalists, uh, politicians, academics, they all scorn it and they say, conspiracy theorists, people with low IQ, they don't even, low light idiot, they don't even know what they are talking about. Actually, when you, you see that many of the things are true. And some of the financial people, some of the more maverick ones, who didn't want to become part of the cabal, they saw it and they spoke about it. For example, the friend of Donald Trump, who even wrote a book or two with Donald Trump, the famous Robert Kiyosaki. Robert Kiyosaki, who is one of these get-rich-quick people, no one of these gurus of make money, rich dead, poor dead, the author of that and of 20 other books. Robert Kiyosaki is a man who personally, I would like to have him as my friend. Like I read three or four of his books and I think he has a disgusting Manipura. I think his Manipura is ugly. I wouldn't want to have as my intimate friend a person who thinks like he thinks. He's not my kind of guy. He gets me stressed out. The very nearness of that man makes my stress levels increase. You know, he's not the kind of person that I want to be or that I want to be with. Robert Kiyosaki, after he wrote 20 rabid books of getting money 
stepping over dead bodies if necessary, like real manipuristic type, you know, completely no compassion, no the kind of libertarian philosophy of Ayn Rand and stuff like this, which is the philosophy of the manipuristic rich people, Robert Kiyosaki finally, he wrote a book, because some people probably told him, told him, told him in various workshops, and being an intelligent guy, he said, come on, this is a bit much, and some of this sounds right. So, he wrote a book, the last but one, or the last but, before the last but one, which is called The Secret of the Money, or something like this. And Robert Kiyosaki uses the first half of that book to demonstrate that all the money industry in the last 200 years is a murderous thing. That money is in the hands of a limited number of super powerful people who control everything. And they control the masses simply because the masses are drooling to have some Coca-Cola, some sex, some address, some glamour from Hollywood, some this, and people are weaklings who can be manipulated to vote for George W. Bush, to do this, to do that. You know, it's like people are so easy to control from that level of Manipura. And Robert Kiyosaki, in his book, find it, if you are curious of these matters, he uses almost 200 pages to demonstrate fresh. Like he said, it has been said, I verified this and this, it's true. It's true like this, it's true like that. He verified. And in the end of 200 pages, he says, there are 300 super rich people who are controlling 99% of this world. Maybe they don't control Iran or some places from North Korea or something, but basically they control pretty much everything that is to be controlled. And they cheat enormously, like David Icke was saying 20 years ago. No? They made banks like the World Wildlife Foundation. And you don't know that the World Wildlife Foundation is a bank which belongs to Rothschild. And it buys land in Africa under the excuse that it's going to save it from poaching and from exploitation. One third of Africa belongs to the World Wildlife Foundation, which sounds so hippie, sounds so nice, but it's a Swiss bank. Actually, you know, and enthusiastic hippies, they say, let's work for the World Wildlife Foundation because we, sell, we save the gorillas. And the only thing which you do is you are volunteering for Rothschild, who meanwhile grabs more land and more land and more land, no? and more resources and all that. So Kiyosaki says all this, shamefully, with his ugly Manipura, he says, yes, this is true, and this is true, and this. And in the end, he says, now I have drawn, by the middle of the book, he says, now I have drawn a terrible, bleak image of the world. Reaching here, if you agree with the con conclusions of this book, now you have to see what are you going to do about it. And he says there are only two things to do. Either you become Robin Hood or William Wallace, the brave heart, or Jesus Christ, and you put a cross on your shoulder and you shed your blood for your brothers and sisters who will not even appreciate your sacrifice because they are hypnotized by Big Brother 
So the fact that you are Armanda Sanj or uh, whatever the name of the other guy was, all these uh, last-minute uh, revolutionaries, you know, what was the other guy? Sandan or whatever. All these computer guys with WikiLeaks and all that stuff. Uh, either you become one of these heroes and then Big Brother will try to eliminate you in whatever skillful way it can, destroy your image, reputation, bankrupt you, eventually kill you, or whatever. Or, so either you become a revolutionary, and then if you are a revolutionary against those 300, it's a promise you won't live long and well. But your heart will be clean because you say, I, like Robin Hood, saw the injustice and fought against it. He says, Kiyosaki in his book says, if any one of you has this kind of balls, read my book, draw the conclusions, go ahead, good luck. He says, I, Robert Kiyosaki, I am a worm. I don't feel like I could be Robin Hood. I don't want to end on a cross. I'm not that compassionate. I couldn't take it. So the only thing which I could do by understanding the finance system of the world is to find a little niche, a little garden of tulips and daffodils for myself, which is not big enough to upset Big Brother, but which allows me to egoistically live a good life. And maybe to a hundred people around me. Like maybe it's not possible to create now a spiritual country. In my dreams, I want to see a spiritual land. What would it be if we would have a place where people would be seriously vegetarian and not only healthy, conscious living, and in a hundred years you would see that the number of cancers of the bowels in that country is a hundred times smaller. Like, for example, in America, one out of four children has manifestations of autism. And all the alternative doctors say it's because of antibiotics used by the parents, and it's because of vaccination, too much vaccines. This combination makes the children come out autistic. Is there, oh, and everybody is screaming, that's not true, that's such a blasphemy, you are just, you, I should be arrested right now for just saying such a thing, and so on. Guess what? There are demonstrations in the United States itself, but they are not big enough to be seen, and they are marginal and weird. There is a community in the United States which has approximately 100 times less autism, practically no autism, in the United States now, today. The Amish. The Amish. These fanatic Christians who don't even use electricity. They don't have autism. But people say, so what? You want me to become an Amish? I better play the Russian roulette, you know? I make a child, and if it's autistic, fuck it. I make another one, and I try again, you know? It's like, what to do? No, like people don't care really. No? And therefore what I'm trying to say here is 
Robert Kiyosaki has said, you know, it's the money conspiracy, what Jesus says here that the power is with the devil, it's true. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to get on the cross like Jesus? Do you have the balls to go on the cross? Are you going to be a firebrand like Milarepa, like Ramakrishna, like Rumi, like ooh, Mother Teresa? That's a much softer one, but still, there is something there. Are you going to live a life of service and self-sacrifice and this? I'm not saying you shouldn't. That's the attitude of the warrior, who is God versus devil, bad versus good, good versus bad. Okay, the world is in a poor condition, and we are the knights of Shambhala. We are fighting against this thing and so on. And if they kill us, they kill us. At least we die fighting, we go on the cross, we are martyrs of a cause. Some of you, especially those of you that have a strong aspiration, would be ready to make. That's why I made that joke with that young man. I told him you could go and be with ISIS, you know, with the Islamic State. No, because when people have balls, you know, and I'm talking about women as well, metaphoric balls, when people have these metaphoric balls of Ishvara Pranidana, they want to fight. They want to stand against the darkness and the evil. Robert Kiyosaki says there is a financial conspiracy. And I cannot break it. Even if I try to be the Robin Hood to expose it, they will kill me. They will wipe me out. And that's why he says, I have simply chosen to create a niche for myself and my wife and my friend and to get by, to simply live in a parallel reality where I'm not upsetting the demons too much and as an exchange, they don't upset me too much. So, the tantric tradition would play this dangerous game, being like very skillful, like, here is an example. In its history, Thailand was never ruled by a colonial power. Cambodia and Vietnam and Laos were ruled by the French. Malaysia was ruled by the British. Burma was ruled by the British. All the nations around were ruled by somebody, not Thailand. Thai people have a very skillful and deceitful way of negotiating, in which they lie a lot and they cheat a lot. One of our general managers ten years ago, he called it the Thai Twister, because he was trying to make deals with the locals in the island. And he got fucked all the time. They made the deals, and three days later, they changed the deal. Which you never do in the West. Once you shake hands on something, a deal is a deal. Not in Thailand. In Thailand, they can take back their word anytime. People will say it means they have no character. It's a sort of a Chinese, Asian, skillful, slippery way of getting your way, even if the way, if the methods are not very kosher and very chivalrous. Result, Thailand was never subjugated by a colonial power. Oh, every nation around was. Thailand managed to lie and cheat everybody until the British and the French and the Dutch and they left them alone. 
they managed to sneak through. That's exactly what Kiyosaki said. Sneak through like the Thais did in history. Manage somehow. Do you live a comfortable life? Live a good life? He's writing books in which he's teaching you how to become a millionaire. Invest your money and be a passive active investor, whatever you call it. I, I'm not completely familiar with his terminology. And live a good life. Many tantric teachers would fit with this. They would say you don't need to go in a monastery. You don't need to get dressed in a robe or in rags. You don't need to practice poverty and so on. But then you need to understand the tantric mentality because there is an alternative. But the tantric mentality is a very fine and skillful game in which you play on this monistic thing. You don't automatically take sides. Like, I am with the God's army, and I'm fighting against the demonic people. Then I can give you a list of 300 demonic people which is published on the internet. Good luck. Go against the demonic people. I can tell you the 300 richest people in the world who run the world and which are not Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and so on. That's just an illusion. Again, those people are the Hollywood rich people, you know, the, the visible ones. But there is a layer even deeper than that where the real power is and things. Of course, those people do have a word to say. They are part of the cabal, but more on the surface. And in that way, that's why I say here, what I read, the second temptation of Jesus, is a bit scary because it basically says you have to be, you have to be poor, you have to be mild Kali Yuga, spiritual people are weirdos, rarities, and uh, that's the faith of a spiritual person in Kali Yuga. On a local basis, you could create an island of a good life. It's not necessary. It's not a must. But for this, you need to practice other skills. You need to learn more monistic spirituality. You need to learn Tantra. You need to understand things in another way to be able to deal with this thing. Swami Shivananda dealt a little bit with Tantra and he also was comfortable in dealing with a lot of money which came to him as donations. Like he didn't have a business. He just received massive donations. And with those donations he made hospitals and colonies for lepers and ashrams and universities and printing presses and all that. The same is done by Amaji and other spiritual personalities of today. So, you have to interpret these things like they happened 2,000 years ago to Jesus in his special context. And Jesus, the story of Jesus gives them to the world in one way. It's just a one-way story. Today, we are looking upon things in a more broad-minded thing because... Again, in the Bible, they did not have comparisons with the Taoism of Lao Tzu and with the Kashmiri Shaivism of Akhinava Gupta and things like that. That's why there is an enlarged way of looking upon it, but that does not destroy the validity of the message of Jesus. As soon as you fall back on dualistic way of thinking, you are in this war. There is a state of war, and it's winter out there, and one has to take this into account. Otherwise, you will not understand why, how the world goes, why the world is 
in some places so twisted that the good looks like bad and the bad looks like good. Why? Precisely because of this. Enough, it's getting late. Uh, this is a very provocative sub subject. I will extract a little bit more of it next time and go to the third temptation of Jesus in the hope that you will understand some of the fundamental issues, some of the fundamental laws and principles which can be understood through yoga as well. Enough for tonight. See you on our next meetings, Q&A, Satsang, and other such events. Thank you for having that patience tonight.